calm community where laughing children were the greatest source of commotion. Until law enforcement drove in in droves, pulling a man out of his home. There was a vibe. You could just see it. You could feel it. A man, a being, his face covered in tattoos, telling a story of satanic worship, a home with blacked out windows and warnings on the front door. Every day, all day, it's in my face. Soon to be covered with signs from authorities warning it's unfit for human life. You're just seeing one part of this investigation. The figure removed from his home because of the lives he took inside of it, then buried in his backyard. Just two victims belonging to a man who gave himself a demonic name. It was a very, very thick environment. It was, it had a, a tenseness to it. Today, those who chose to follow or enable him are still tortured by his undertakings. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy, and this is Seduced by Satan. Autumn in Clemens, North Carolina, a community so tight-knit they don't call it a city or a town, they call it a village. The bugs of summer begin to quiet as the leaves change from their striking shades of green, briefly to hues of yellow and red, before a quick browning crisp and their descent to the ground. There's a road, Knob Hill Drive, located just minutes from the highway. Still, the density of the surrounding trees block out most sound from the outside world. And people living there liked it that way. I never wanted my 15 minutes of fame. I just happened to live in, in the right place at the right time, I guess. The Knob Hill homes, your typical 80s, 90s homes, a mix of two-story and one-stories. Brick, vinyl, some wood, each with their own unique features. Picture a three-bed, three-bath, 2,300 square feet for less than $230,000. Most within, at most, a couple hundred feet of each other, and the majority of neighbors even closer. Family names on mailboxes, an appealing, shielded neighborhood. But just like any neighborhood, people talk. I think that now it's absolutely plausible, and I believe everything. All the rumors that I had heard that I didn't believe before, I absolutely believe them now. But if you were driving down Knob Hill in October of 2014, if you took a slight turn from left to right and went up over the hill and looked closely enough at the home to your right, labeled 2749, you'd notice something, maybe someone, that didn't fit. The people who could see the home from their front windows certainly did. Nothing against the homeowner, you know, she's a nice lady. The lawn's mowed, still alive despite the recent summer scorch. It's a red brick house, driveway to the left, basketball hoop at the end. The shutters a worn beet color, the roof neglected, some of the shingles missing, the rest discolored. The front porch, small, with white railings leading up the stairs. But in a religion-laden region such as the South, the front door of the home at 2749 displayed something odd, an upside-down cross. Perhaps most visible on that black door, an off-white skull with bug eyes, a sticker saying evil will triumph, a handwritten note, a warning of sorts, reading, no gang members allowed, Anyone that dresses the same, has the same badge, and call themselves the authority of a land they did not create, they only seized through terrorism, has no permission to enter this land, unless you are a native, since this is their land. Since this is the First Amendment of your fake laws, for we see you are guilty until proven innocent, if you can make laws, 
so can we. So be it. Below, in broken cursive, signed, Pazuzu Algorod. Pazuzu, familiar to those who've seen The Exorcist, mythology describes him as the king of wind demons, standing on two legs with human arms ending in claws, two pairs of wings, a scorpion's tail, a horned, bearded head with bulging eyes, and a snarling canine mouth. The night of October 4th, 2014, would go down as the last night that Pazuzu spent behind the protections he imagined. The boundaries neighbors had come to enjoy were about to be broken too. When you see 27 cop cars outside of your front door, it's 7 in the morning when you wake up, it's kind of unnerving. On the morning of October 4th, at 10 o'clock, a search warrant was signed by a Forsyth County, North Carolina Superior Court judge. The next day, a simple click of a mouse from inside the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office in neighboring Winston-Salem sent out a press release poised to send shockwaves through Clemens, Forsyth County, and far beyond. Then Chief Deputy Brad Stanley took his place in front of a firing line of cameras and microphones. We are letting the scene and the information and evidence that we collect sort of dictate uh, as to what degree of expertise that we need. It read, the sheriff's office had arrested and charged two people with murder in connection with the deaths of two unidentified individuals. The search warrant had been executed that day, the 5th, and during their search, the skeletal remains of two individuals were found in shallow graves in the backyard of 2749 Knob Hill Drive. Pazuzu Algarod and a 24-year-old named Amber Birch, later found to be Pazuzu's self-proclaimed wife, had both been charged with one count of murder and one count of accessory after the fact to murder. The news itself was enough to fracture the small town's sense of security Clemens was known for. But when Pazuzu's mugshot was released, the God-fearing people of Forsyth County and surrounding were given a phobia previously provided only by the likes of Bundy, Dahmer, Manson. This time, the killer, with two bodies buried in his backyard, was in theirs. To be honest with you, it didn't seem like they were capable of that. I mean, they could be decent people, even though they look the way they look. The most ordinary part of Pazuzu's mugshot was his haircut. There was none. His head had been shaved clean, but his face would provoke nightmares in children and adults alike. A neighbor, Stephanie Lynch, who told us she used to drive Pazuzu to school, looked back at the signs. It was probably 2008 when it was really obvious that he had changed, that he had gone down the path of Satanism. Pazuzu, at age 35, had what appeared to be homemade tattoos from his chin reaching to his barely there hairline. His cheeks and cheekbones seemingly outlined with black ink. Think the bone in a T-bone steak, reversed on opposite sides of his face. Dark on one side, almost unfinished on the other. Lines extending from the corners of his mouth, like Heath Ledger's Joker. Nine dots, where his eyebrows had been removed, with lines streaking across the left side of his forehead. Three smaller lines across the bridge of his nose an illegible design stretching from his upper right forehead down to his chin, a chin shielded by a thin, burnt orange, sloppy beard along his jawline. In the center of it all, piercing blue eyes, projecting a death stare aimed at the lens in front of him. An older mugshot of Pazuzu showed him without the beard, two parallel lines from his bottom lip to his chin more visible, his eyes only half open, as though he was stoned, and his hair in dreadlocks, not the tight, well-manicured kind, 
They were dark brown and sloppy, with clumps of hair escaping the locks. It was almost more creepy. In the following hours, rumors of Pazuzu and Amber Birch's teeth being shaved to points, stories of what was behind that black sticker-stuffed front door. It was kind of blacked out, and the wallpaper had been peeled off. Investigators setting up tents in the backyard of the house surrounding a fire pit and empty in-ground pool heightened the hysteria. Some who claimed to have been inside started to appear, scared to have their names attached to the story, asking to have their identities concealed. And you could tell when his demons needed something from him because they took over. Mounds of dirt were moved, tarps both blue and black surrounding them. It was very serpentine. It was, and his eyes would kind of get a little like glazy, like almost not there. Like, like the inner part of him would kind of phase away. Tales of devil worshiping, sacrifices, drugs, and alcohol grew from whispers. From what I hear, as far as people that were around, I mean, he was doing all kinds of things. People would go there get drugs. To shouts. I was kind of dumbfounded as to why they hadn't gone in there for other reasons. Reporters and cameramen, myself included, flocked to the front yard, not knowing we'd be there for weeks instead of hours or days like your typical crime scene. But the feeling was an uneasy one. Lines of live trucks were parked in the grass, their masts extending far into a mostly cloudy sky. Blocked by a fence surrounding the backyard as the sheriff's office, state bureau of investigation, forensic anthropologists kept digging. The creak of the black door as detectives walked out with hazmat suits and masks. Further clues as to what the inside of 2749 Knob Hill was hiding, but still, all we had to go on as reporters in terms of the home's inner workings were stories from people who didn't want to tell us their names. There was scribbles and scratches and graffiti and Arabic and Satan and swastikas. Some onlookers claiming to have witnessed the happenings of the home's underbelly detailing swastikas, satanic markings, feces, both animal and human, sex and drug-fueled parties, cages. About once a month, and it was usually on a full moon, they sacrificed at least one rabbit and then he would eat the heart of it and then burn the flesh of the rabbit. Two days after the original press release, a second, a third person, Crystal Matlock, 28 years old, also charged. One count with accessory after the fact to murder. In the days to come, firefighters were seen smashing out windows, then pulling out black sheets from the darkness to air out the stench trapped inside. The district attorney, Jim O'Neill, on site to get a firmer grasp of what his office would soon be tasked with prosecuting. Got to let the sheriff's department do their job and the SBI finish up their work and uh, we'll see what happens then. Eight days after the first press release, a third titled Medical Examiner Identifies Both Skeletal Remains. I knew immediately it was Josh. Joshua Frederick Wetzler's birthday was March 12, 1977. Tommy Dean Welch was born August 13, 1978. Their bones were found on October 5th and identified as Pazuzu and Birch's victims on October 13, 2014. Josh's ex-fiancee, Stacy Carter, had last seen him in July of 2009, just a few years after their son was born. He came out a weekend in July, um, and he was there. He stayed 
overnight, so he was there for a couple of days. Um, and we actually had a, a good time. We got along that weekend, uh, but it wasn't unlikely for him to just kind of disappear for uh, a little while. I didn't have a consistent phone number to reach him. Josh Wetzler is more of a heavy set guy, usually in a forward-facing ball cap with his medium-length hair peeking out, thin-framed glasses, and a beard surrounding a wide, sincere smile. A drifter of sorts, known for being a bit of a hippie, Stacy didn't think twice when she didn't hear from Josh for days. Days turned to weeks, then months, but... When I heard in February, that following February... She'd thought he'd chosen to disappear. That Josh was buried in Pazuzu's yard. That's when I went to the detective in Davie County and told him that um, what I thought, what I'd heard, and I had officially filed a missing person report. Unbeknownst to her, Josh's car, a 1989 Buick license plate YVZ6580, had been found by the Winston-Salem Police Department just days after she'd last seen him. It was parked illegally at an apartment complex with the window rolled down and the keys still in the ignition. It hadn't been reported stolen. Had I known that his car had been found abandoned, we would have immediately started looking for him, uh, but no one was ever told. Tommy Dean Welch was last seen at his brother's apartment, less than two and a half miles from Pazuzu's house. He had reddish hair, a retracting hairline, and what was there was shaved tight. A rounded face and a goatee, he'd made plans with his family in October of 2009. Plans he never showed up for. His family reported him missing the next day, October 4th, 2009, five years to the day before investigators filed for the search warrant of Pazuzu's home. The second search warrant, that is. Yes, deputies had been to Pazuzu's home before. They'd searched his home before. They'd searched his yard before. Something Stacy wouldn't learn until after Josh and Tommy were found. I don't want to say I blame the police. I don't want, you know, it's like they've got a tough job and I understand uh, mistakes are made. With Tommy and Josh already buried below, those deputies went home empty-handed. The specifics as to why wouldn't come to light for years to come. I'm not going to say that the parents are always the problem. There are plenty of cases where kids have major issues or they're addicts or whatever, and, the, and their parents are doing, you know, they're, they, they're not at fault. They're doing the best they can. They're doing a good job. That happens. But in Pazuzu's case, I think the parent situation was part of the problem. The parent situation Stacy speaks of was that of Pazuzu's mother. Cynthia James. They all make bad choices. Cynthia, a seemingly fragile, aging woman, mid-60s, average height, shortened gray hair with a sharp nose, once lovely features with a wide smile, dulled during her latter time as a mother. A mother who lived with her son, and Birch, inside the Knob Hill Drive home. A mother who loved her son, loved her son enough to not turn him into deputies even after being in the home, when both Tommy and Josh were murdered. So what's going on? I didn't even know he had a gun. And it was like a rifle, like, and he's standing there and Josh is laying on the floor and I'm like, oh my God, I mean, I don't remember what, I mean, I'm going crazy. And he just stood there. I'd never seen him look like this before. He was just like dazed and confused. 
The investigation was just starting, and that closed front door was about to be opened wide. Don't believe uh, any of my hoarding cases will match with this one. This is the cleanest room in the house. Huh? This is the cleanest room in the house. What investigators found inside and outside, how neighbors reacted, and how Pazuzu's mother survived living in filth amongst murderers. All coming up in episode two of Seduced by Satan. If you like the podcast, please rate it, comment on it, and subscribe to it. Seduced by Satan was written and reported on by me, Michael Hennessy, edited by Matt Jensen. Joe Dockerty helped with some of the interviews. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels.